Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mester, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop. It's a comprehensive series on supportive care, and this is part two, Understanding Chemotherapy-Induced Neutropenia, or Low White Blood Cell Count. This is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 831 participants, so there's many of you on the call. It's a very large teleconference, and, uh, and also some of you are live streaming the call as well. And we have internet, and many from all of the United States, many of you from every part of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Ireland, Luxembourg, Spain, the UK, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program was made possible by Teva Pharmaceuticals and an educational donation from, provided by Amgen. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program and this entire series, as well as their collabor collaboration and partnership as a corporation in making today's program possible. You have received from us some material about the program today, about our speakers and the topics they'll be addressing. There also is information about all of our different collaborating organizations and there is information also about their resources, their 800 numbers and websites for you to utilize as additional help and resources. There's an evaluation form as well, and I would ask you all to please complete that evaluation form at the end of today's program. I can't tell you how important your feedback is for us to get a sense of what you thought of the program and also topics that you might recommend that we offer going forward. This is the beginning of 2014, so we're planning many, many programs for this year. And your thoughts and suggestions of topics that you would find helpful are invaluable to us so that we keep the programs most relevant to meet your needs. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. William Bensinger. Dr. Bensinger is Professor of Medicine, University of Washington. He's Director, Autologous Stem Cell Transplant Program, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And Dr. Bensinger is going to address overview of chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, a low white blood cell count. He's going to talk about the signs, symptoms, and complications of neutropenia. He's going to talk about the standard of care and new treatment approaches, steps you can take to reduce the risk of infection, and managing your cancer treatments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Bensinger. Thank you very much, Carolyn. So we're going to be talking about neutropenia today. And the term neutropenia refers to a abnormally low number of a particular blood cell called a neutrophil. And neutrophils are also uh, referred to as granulocytes. So if you hear the term granulocyte or neutrophil, essentially these are interchangeable terms. 
Neutrophils are one of a variety of blood cells that circulate in, in our blood and perform very important functions. Neutrophils uh, are produced in very large numbers. Uh, normally, we have about 100 billion of these cells grown every day because the cells only last uh, for a few days and get used up in their uh, daily activities. Neutrophils are, are the largest uh, white blood cell we have in circulation. It's about 70% of them. And basically, neutrophils are a professional killer cell. Their job is basically to seek out and destroy bacteria or viruses that invade our body really on a regular basis. And they're actually uh, adapted to uh, move out of the circulation to areas where there may be bacteria and uh, eliminate those bacteria. Now, you get neutropenia from a variety of different causes. Uh, neutropenia can occur uh, uh, without a known cause. You can get neutropenia from certain types of drugs or autoimmune diseases. Today we're going to be talking really about uh, chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. Now, we try to separate uh, neutropenia into mild, moderate, and severe. And this is really based on the neutrophil or granulocyte count in the bloodstream. Typically, all of us have more than 1,700 neutrophils in our blood per microliter of blood. If you have a neutrophil count between 1,000 and 1,500, that's considered mild neutropenia. If your count is below 1,000 but over 500, that's considered moderate neutropenia. And if it's less than 500, that's severe. And the risk for infection or what we refer to as febrile neutropenia, which means a fever in association with a low neutrophil count, the risk of that goes up with the severity of the neutropenia and the duration of the neutropenia. Now, there are known risk factors for neutropenia and for the development of febrile neutropenia. Older patients, namely patients over the age of 65, are at greater risk for neutropenia and fevers associated with neutropenia. Previous chemotherapy or radiation treatments predispose patients to the development of neutropenia. Uh, you can develop, you can be neutropenia if you have heavy involvement of the bone marrow with uh, a tumor. So certain types of tumors tend to involve the bone marrow more readily, and in advanced cases in the marrow, you can develop neutropenia without any treatment. A perfect example of this is a, is a patient with acute leukemia. In acute leukemia, this is a, actually a cancer involving one of the white blood cells. But since it involves the marrow, often patients present with neutropenia. That may be their initial presenting sign. So other pre-existing conditions, if patients have open wounds or recent surgery or catheters in place, this predisposes patients to not only neutropenia but the development of fevers. 
Uh, patients who have comorbidities such as uh, chronic obstructive lung disease, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, if you have abnormal kidney function or liver function, uh, these can all predispose to neutropenia and febrile neutropenia. Now when it comes to chemotherapy, uh, we can generally classify the risk of neutropenia uh, by the type of chemotherapy that is given and the intensity of chemotherapy. So for patients who have standard chemotherapy regimens, for most solid tumors, for example, for breast cancer or lung cancer, uh, most of the time these regimens are less intensive and the risk of, of developing neutropenia is considered lower. There are more intensive regimens that are used for the treatment of lymphoma or for uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia or patients who are undergoing an autologous stem cell transplant, which involves a more intensive form of chemotherapy. These patients are intermediate, considered intermediate, and their risk for neutropenia and the development of fever. The highest risk are among patients who have acute leukemia and are undergoing induction therapy, uh, so initial therapy for leukemia. Uh, patients who are undergoing allogeneic stem cell transplant with high-dose regimens. Uh, certain types of drugs can also predispose, such as uh, a drug called alemtuzumab. It's also called Campath, and that can affect uh, the bone marrow to a greater degree. So these are the kinds of things that uh, can lead to uh, um, a greater risk. Now, if you have neutropenia, uh, your symptoms, uh, you're, you're only, and you don't know you've got it, the, the symptoms of it may be a fever, often a low-grade fever. You may have a sore mouth or sore gums, or you may have uh, uh, pain in the gums and swelling. You may develop abscesses in your skin or have other types of infections sinus infections, ear infections, or you may just present with something like a pneumonia, in which case you may, you may have fever and a cough and shortness of breath. The uh, perirectal area is also uh, an area that can be involved and can become quite irritated uh, in the face of neutropenia. Now, um, the, the key, of course, is to treat uh, the neutropenia and try to avoid it. And the longer you go uh, when you're neutropenic, the greater the risk of developing fever and complications. If you develop fevers during neutropenia, about 40% uh, to 50% of the time, they're going to find a source of the infection. But up to half of the time, um, they can never find a clear source. So nothing grows out of blood cultures or urine cultures or um, uh, cultures of sputum from the lungs, and they, they aren't able to uh, determine uh, the source. 
Now this is uh, uh, neutropenia and the fevers that develop uh, is, a, is a big economic cost. About 60,000 or more cancer patients per year are hospitalized for fevers and neutropenia. So it's definitely something uh, that you'd like to avoid if you can. If you know you're neutropenic, you can minimize the risk of infection uh, by avoiding crowds or people with known upper respiratory infections. Uh, you should be absolutely um, obsessive about good hand washing or the use of uh, sanitizers that can uh, uh, help sterilize your skin. People don't realize that you really, uh, most of the sources of infection that people acquire is really from their hands. They may uh, uh, shake hands with someone who's got an infection and then, you know, if they rub their nose or something like that, they can then transfer a source of infection directly to their upper airway. So in addition to that, uh, good oral hygiene, mouth rinses, and uh, good skin care. You should probably avoid certain types of activities that may predispose you to infection, gardening, mowing the lawn where you may be inhaling some of the uh, uh, grass or, or particulates that are uh, churned up by the lawnmower. In patients who, have, who are going to have prolonged or severe neutropenia, prophylactic antibiotics or antifungal treatments may be useful. In addition, uh, for certain types of uh, more significant um, neutropenia, often colony stimulating factors are useful and they can often avoid, uh, help avoid uh, prolonged and severe neutropenia. Generally, they're added in after a patient has already demonstrated fairly significant neutropenia when they get subsequent cycles of chemotherapy. The most commonly used one is called GCSF, which stands for granulocyte colony stimulating factor. This is given on a daily basis as a subcutaneous injection. There is also a long-acting version that has been uh, linked to uh, what's called polyethylene glycol. And what this does is it allows the molecule to circulate longer in the system and can have a prolonged effect over uh, up to a week or more. And in that case, you only need a single injection. Uh, the downside is it's just a lot more expensive as a medication. Additionally, sometimes a different colony stimulating factor, granulocyte colony stimulating factor, can be used as well. And uh, these can avoid or, or at least mitigate in part uh, the more severe neutropenia by increasing the count of neutrophils and uh, not allowing it to, your counts to go extremely low, and at the same time, can shorten up the period of neutropenia and in that way reduce the risk or the potential risk for infection. I think that's about all I wanted to say. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Bensinger. That was really very comprehensive and I think you've really helped people understand um, the importance of, um, of, of neutropenia and of dealing with it and coping with it. So I know there'll be questions for you during the, the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. 
Dr. Peterson is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine. He's Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAE Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson is going to address guidelines for oral and dental care and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm delighted to be part of this very important discussion today. And as, as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, and actually as we discussed as well in part one of this program last month, not all chemotherapy causes mouth problems either during the chemotherapy or in the weeks and months after the chemotherapy. When the chemotherapy does cause problems on the mouth, however, these problems typically occur in the first few days after the chemotherapy starts, and the problems, if they occur, typically last for two to three weeks until after the chemotherapy ends. And this ties uh, very, very well with the way Dr. Bensinger was explaining the neutropenia that can be associated with certain chemotherapies. And so for today's discussion, uh, this issue of neutropenia, low white blood cell count, and infection can be considered in the context of mouth infections. We may not think of uh, dental cavities, for example, as infections, but that's really what they are. Uh, gum disease is another type of very complex infection in many patients. And when the white blood cell counts are low, these infections of the teeth and the gums may become an acute problem that require aggressive systemic or uh, intravenous antibiotics. And as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, a very important point, the lower the neutrophil count, and in fact the lower the white blood cell count in general, and the longer those counts stay down because of the chemotherapy, the higher the likelihood of an acute infection developing from certain types of mouth infections, whether it's from the teeth or the gums or even the, the lining tissues of the mouth. And so given the complexity of these considerations, it's really important to have a, a comprehensive discussion with your, your cancer care team. And if the type of chemotherapy that you're going to be receiving is predicted to cause that uh, neutropenia that Dr. Bensinger was describing, a dental checkup and selected dental treatment before the chemotherapy begins a few weeks from now very much helps the stage, set, set the stage for the prevention. And so this, this communication, and I'll come back to this a little bit later as I finish, this communication among uh, the patient and the, the cancer care team is really important well before the chemotherapy begins. Now as far as the actual dental care before and, and during chemotherapy, just some, some words about that. It's always a good idea to take care of your mouth uh, based on a schedule and a dental uh, care plan that's developed between you and your dental team. That's, that's well established in the literature. And uh, this prevention of mouth problems, even if you don't have cancer, is, is always an excellent goal rather than waiting until a, a mouth problem becomes a, a very serious acute problem. So it's so much better to head off a problem than it is to wait until a serious problem develops. This idea of prevention becomes very, very important if you're going to be receiving certain types of chemotherapy, as Dr. Bensinger mentioned. Now, the good news, again, as I mentioned, is that not all types of chemotherapy cause uh, enough risk that certain dental procedures need to be done. For, for example, if a patient's going to be receiving very aggressive curative chemotherapy but only has a minor dental cavity or wants the front teeth to look a little bit better in a cosmetic way. Those procedures, those dental procedures, although 
very uh, helpful, very important, can absolutely wait until after the neutropenia uh, resolves and the white blood cells are functioning well again. However, if a patient has very deep cavities that uh, invade deeply into a tooth or has severe gum disease, these typically require treatment uh, before the chemotherapy begins, again, if that chemotherapy is going to cause pronounced and prolonged neutropenia. Now, it's also, I think, important to mention that in addition to the teeth and the gums, the dental team working with the rest of the cancer care team can assess other problems in your mouth and head off a lot of these problems before they even begin, such as uh, problems associated with the lining tissues of your mouth, as, as well as the salivary glands that make the spit in our, in our mouths. So this detailed mouth examination by the dental team coupled with a, uh, a strategy that may include a thorough cleaning and medically necessary dental care before the chemotherapy begins is very, very important so that when there is this low neutrophil count that Dr. Bensinger mentioned, these problems in the mouth don't flare up and cause other problems. Now, if... Uh, if these problems in the mouth are not headed off before the chemotherapy, uh, a patient may develop the infection in the mouth during the neutropenia. And as we heard uh, previously, the gums may become sore or even swollen. And what's going on here is that these pre-existing quiet infections, which may not be causing any problem before the chemotherapy begins, may actually flare up because the neutrophils are no longer there to, to fight off the, the bacterial infection. Now, I'm... Uh, very happy to report that the oncology teams around the world are typically quite skilled in, in detecting these mouth infections should they occur and treating them effectively. But again, if we can prevent the problem, uh, let's, let's really work together on that. We heard also from Dr. Bensinger about the sore mouth, just a, a few words about that. In addition to uh, teeth and the gums, certain types of chemotherapy can cause uh, this irritation to the lining tissues of the mouth, the, the mouth sores, or the uh, technical term for it is mucositis. And this mucositis experience typically begins a few days after the chemotherapy begins, whether or not the patient has low white counts. And typically goes away about three to four weeks after the chemotherapy ends. And there are a number of very effective products that we can give the patient either topically in the mouth or systemically through intravenous or pills uh, that can help the patient during the mucositis experience. An additional uh, very good news is that new approaches are in development all the time through clinical research trials to see which of the best drugs and biologics in the future uh, may be even more effective than what we have now. But again, we've got a very, very comprehensive approach to, if not prevent some of these problems, make the patient very comfortable uh, during the uh, mucositis experience until it goes away and minimize, if not eliminate, any risk for infection. Carolyn asked me also to comment uh, uh, on the communication issue, the communicating with your healthcare team. And this, this really is a very, very important theme of, of this workshop today that we're having, as well as every other cancer care workshop uh, that goes around the world. This idea of centering our uh, uh, decision making and our care in communication. 
those of us who work in the health professions in partnership with the cancer patients and the families absolutely depend on what you tell us about how you're feeling and, and particularly if you have any concerns or any questions. We, we really count on this. And as we continuously strive to provide the very best cancer care possible, your communication is essential to achieving this goal. You know, I think simply put, we really and truly are in this together. And if you tell us how you're feeling and tell us of any of your concerns, we will do everything we can to uh, address those issues. Now, two very good questions to discuss with your oncology team in the, the weeks before you start chemotherapy that may cause neutropenia are, number one, to what extent uh, do you think I may develop any problems in my mouth due to the chemotherapy and the resultant neutropenia. In other words, ask your cancer care team, do you think I'm going to develop any mouth problems because of the chemotherapy and low white blood cell count? Um, and if so, how can we address those now? And then I think the second line of question to be consider is, are there any problems in my mouth, like uh, deep dental cavities or severe gum disease that may complicate my upcoming chemotherapeutic treatment, particularly when I have neutropenia. And if I do have these mouth problems before chemotherapy, what's the best way to eliminate or at least minimize this risk of infection? So I think those two lines of questions are very good ones to uh, discuss with your cancer care team, again, speaking to communication. Now, based on the answer to those questions, the cancer care team, including the oncologists and the nurse oncologists, the dental team, nutritionists, social worker, and the, the whole uh, portfolio that you have to help you can really prioritize this mouth care management. So as I uh, conclude, I'd just like to briefly summarize that, uh, first of all, very importantly, not all cancer patients develop mouth complications because of chemotherapy and its associated uh, low white blood cell count and neutropenia. And it is really key to get those questions with your cancer care team in those couple of weeks even before you start your chemotherapy to see what kinds of mouth treatment may be necessary. And uh, many of these mouth infections associated with neutropenia can absolutely be prevented using this approach. And there are uh, superb resources available to patients and their families and to the cancer care team to, to, guide, to guide this decision-making and, and, and mouth treatments. And uh, I really can't think of a more superb resource than the cancer care program uh, and the resources that they in turn open up to you around the world. So this kind of communication and collaboration and science-based uh, clinical care uh, is really designed to lead to uh, very positive outcomes for your, for your cancer treatment. Carolyn, I'll stop at this point then and turn the program back to you. And again, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. And it's such an important area that you're addressing, and I think that um, I hope everyone on the call really really takes it to heart, talks with your oncologist and your dentist, and be sure that whatever you're doing is appropriate um, given your level of neutropenia and um, what you're hearing today. So thank you so much for all those tips, and um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Danielle Bayham. Danielle is Senior Clinical Dietitian, Department of Clinical Nutrition, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bayham is going to address nutritional concerns and tips that you may have. Uh, Ms. Bayham? Hey, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be a part of this supportive care series. For decades, uh, the concept of the neutropenic diet has implied that 
a strict limitation of foods as a possible means of reducing the risk of infection in cancer patients. The rationale was to limit the introduction of potentially harmful bacteria into the GI tract by restriction of certain foods that might harbor those organisms. However, this concept has not been validated with direct proof, and there's no universal definition of the neutropenic diet. Exactly which foods are restricted varies greatly by institutions, but most notable is the restriction of fresh fruits and vegetables. Research evaluating potential benefits of, neutro of a neutropenic diet is very limited, but the diet is still prescribed in many institutions with the hope that it will prevent foodborne infection and or bacteremia in neutropenic patients. Generally, current nutrition recommendations reflect an improved understanding of the risk of foodborne illness with an emphasis on conservative food handling practices. Again, wash hands frequently. Use plenty of soap and hot running water for at least 20 seconds. Um, after uh, using the restroom, you want to make sure you wash your hands thoroughly before eating, before and after each step of food preparation things we don't think about, after handling the garbage or after touching your pets. Make sure you keep cut bo cutting boards, countertops, and utensils thoroughly cleaned. Change, launder, and discard sponges and dish towels often. Separate and do not cross-contaminate. Keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs away from ready-to-eat foods. Always use separate cutting boards for raw meat, poultry, and fish. Cook food thoroughly at proper temperatures. You may need to use a food thermometer to make sure foods are safely cooked. For example, uh, steaks and roasts should be 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Fish should be 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Properly wrap and refrigerate foods promptly. Refrigerate or freeze leftovers, leftover foods excuse me, within one hour to limit growth of bacteria. Set the refrigerator between 34 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Keep the freezer set to 0 to 2 degrees Fahrenheit below. Thaw frozen meat and poultry in the refrigerator, microwave, or cold water. Do not leave it out on the kitchen counter. Pay attention to food product expiration dates. If you're in doubt, throw it out. Do not buy use, uh, excuse me, do not buy or use food in cans that are swollen, dented, or damaged. There are some food safety things that you should pay attention to when you're shopping. Carefully read all your food labels in the store to make sure the food um, is not past its sell-by date. Put raw packaged meats, poultry, or seafood into a plastic bag before placing it in the shopping cart so that its juices will not drip on and contaminate other foods. Buy only pasteurized milk, cheese, and other dairy products from the refrigerated section. When buying fruit juice from the refrigerated section of the store, be sure that the juice label says it's pasteurized. Purchase eggs in the shell from the refrigerated section of the store. For recipes that call for eggs that are raw or undercooked when the dish is served, homemade Caesar salad, dressing, and ice cream are two examples. Use either shell eggs that have been treated 
to destroy salmonella, salmonella by pasteurization or pasteurized egg products. Never buy food that is displayed in unsafe or unclean conditions. Try to avoid old, moldy, or damaged fruits and vegetables. Pay attention to when you're um, picking out all your fruits and vegetables. And make sure you wash them very thoroughly. You could also um, make your own wa vegetable wash at home uh, with either lemon juice or vinegar um, to get rid of extra uh, dirt. Use caution when eating out. You want to make sure you avoid salad bars and buffets. Again, limit your exposure to large, group, large groups of people and people who have infections. And um, as always, make sure you wash your hands frequently. I just wanted to take home that point um, as I close here. We do a little tip with singing happy birthday twice to make sure you've met your 20 seconds in washing your hands uh, very thoroughly. And one last point I just wanted to make, um, you may have questions about whether or not you need to buy uh, organically grown foods. Uh, well, there are many reasons why people prefer to eat foods organically grown with fewer pesticides. Um, eating foods that contain pesticides uh, could in uh, increase cancer risk slightly. However, studies clearly affirm that consuming a diet rich in fruits and vegetables overall, whether grown conventionally or organically, is important um, in your diet overall. So again, if you do have a low white blood cell counts, neutropenia, you can uh, be conservative with all your food handling practices, and um, you don't have to specifically do no fresh fruits and vegetables, but make sure your fruits and vegetables are washed very thoroughly. And that is all I have for today with the nutrition portion. Well, thank you so much. That's really wonderful. I love that tip. You know, everyone always wonders how long should one wash one's hands. So, um, Danielle, you're suggesting that people sing happy birthday twice. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? And that will do it? <laughs> yes. Okay, and do it slowly. <laughs> so you can't, uh, you know, and isn't that a lovely uh, message to everybody? That's kind of a nice thing to do every time you're washing your hands to think about that. So you, because people often wonder how long. So thank you, and thanks for the, all the other wonderful tips as well. Um, just really great eating tips. And I, I want to remind all of you that these programs, you know, you listen to them live today, but they also on replay. So you can always listen to them, like on telephone replay or on, as a podcast on the website, and so they're always accessible to you 24 hours a day. So if there's something that someone said and you want to go back and listen to it, you can do that. Um, so just, just remember that. And our next speaker is Anna Eckhart, and Anna is an oncology social worker, and she's coordinator of our online services at Cancer Care. And Ms. Eckhart is going to address the free psychosocial support services offered by Cancer Care and the role of support groups. And it's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Eckhart. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, yes, I am an oncology social worker, and I work with many patients and loved ones coping with and attempting to understand chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. So I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer or caring for someone with cancer. There are many ways cancer care can be part of your network, and there are many ways we can help. So here at Cancer Care, we are a national nonprofit organization, and we provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. All our services are provided by licensed, master-level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers, like me, 
are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help people with cancer and their families tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, the physical changes, social adjustment and psychological impact, and overall care. Um, adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. And as social workers, we would argue that that is an essential part. Additionally, we provide education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, uh, help you find practical help and discuss some of the limited financial assistance, such as how to apply for chemo copay assistance. So as you may know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. I, and I want to stress that asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling, this is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or have similar problems. And individual counseling provides a space that is just yours to voice any concerns. And these connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. You know, and feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. So some of the programs that we have here, it includes individual counseling, which we conduct either face-to-face -face for those in our New York City area or over the telephone for our national clients. And we run three different types of support groups. At the moment, we're providing face-to-face -face groups for those in the New York City area. We have over-the-telephone groups for our national clients who wish to have that live discussion about the issues most important to them. And finally, we have online support groups, which allow people from literally all over the world to write and share about their cancer experiences. So at this time, Cancer Care offers both online and telephone support groups. We have one for patients and one for caregivers. And additionally, we have a unique young adult program and a unique young adult caregiver group for people between the ages of 20 and 39 years old who are currently caring for someone. And so if you're interested in any of these types of services that we offer, uh, please call our HOPE line. And the number for the HOPE line is 1-800-813-4673. Or if it's the online support group that interests you, then you can visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of additional information on your cancer diagnosis and the treatment you need to receive. So as we learn from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest, you know, just like Carolyn said, and you know, just to get your arms around. Um, and our social workers can help you understand what this and all of this information means for you and your family. Your social worker can help you prioritize and actually rehearse the questions that you might want to um, you know, get uh, the answers and the information you need. We've discussed some of those things about what questions to ask your doctor. You were given a few examples, and we would be happy to rehearse those with you. So feel free to call us um, and discuss those things. And lastly, remember that you're not alone. Cancer care services are there to help. That's why we exist. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Anna. That was wonderful, and um, it's just wonderful to um, let people know that we are here to help, and um, we're simply a phone call away, so do take advantage of that, or um, we're, we're here to help. And now we have time for questions. I want to thank all of our speakers for really 
making that possible. So we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Stephanie to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your question, please do call our 800 number, 1-800-813-HOPE, and our staff are here to address your questions. But let's see if we can take most of your questions right now. And if you think of a question after the call uh, in a couple of days um, or a couple of weeks, you can always call us. We're here, of course, to, to answer your questions as well. Um, and our, um, so I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and um, we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. And we actually have a comment from Mona, actually, um, who online, who actually commented about the happy birthday twice. She thought it was a very interesting tip. So I'm going to just ask Danielle if you could say a little bit more about that. <laughs> I, I, I clearly it's captured a lot of attention here. So, oh, well, um, you know, working in a large institution, we always have um, just safety uh, policies that go around, and so that was one of the things that they taught the entire um, institution to make sure we're all practicing our hand safety and hand washing is to sing happy birthday twice and that lets you know that you have met <laughs> your guidelines. So that's how we came up with that. Yeah. I think I can't remember who which department it was that told us that, but it was a whole initiative throughout our entire institution. Well, that's really good to know. So we're, we definitely, this is uh, something that we all then want to practice ourselves. It sounds like a great, a great tip. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And we have a question for one of our online participants about the flu season um, in terms of getting flu shots. And um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Bensinger if you could address that question about neutropenia and flu shots. And um, Yeah, so I, I think uh, getting a flu shot is almost always recommended for patients who are undergoing therapy. Now, having said that, uh, it is important that you get a flu shot uh, with a live, uh, excuse me, with a killed virus rather than a live virus. There is a type of flu vaccine, I believe it's called flu mist, which is given intranasally, and that is a live vaccine, and I would not, uh, under any circumstances, recommend uh, vaccination with that because this virus, while it's attenuated, which means it's not supposed to cause serious infection, can in patients who have their immune system altered uh, cause greater reactions and potentially uh, a significant infection. But I think uh, vaccination with a killed virus, which is most commonly a flu shot, is, a, is recommended. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so which people on chemotherapy are most at risk for neutropenia and infections? Again, Dr. Bensinger, could you address that? Well, it, again, it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, patients who are getting more intensive types of chemotherapy are, are at greater risk. So patients who are being treated for lymphomas or uh, acute leukemias, patients who are having uh, more intensive chemotherapy for uh, autologous transplant or allogeneic stem cell transplant are considered to be at greater risk. But in, it, 
in addition to that, um, patients who, are, who have had multiple prior chemotherapies, so uh, even though with the first or perhaps second cycle of chemotherapy, you may not develop neutropenia with subsequent cycles, the risk goes up because there is a small amount of subtle, uh, damage that can occur to the bone marrow, and with each successive cycle of therapy, it may be more difficult for the bone marrow to recover from that. In addition, radiation that's given uh, uh, before or after chemotherapy can increase the risk of neutropenia. And then finally, as I mentioned, if you have bone marrow involvement with your tumor, that can also predispose you to develop neutropenia because you have less marrow reserve. There's fewer normal cells in the bone marrow because the space is taken up with tumor cells. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, I'm a newly diagnosed lymphoma patient. My white cells are were normal a few months before my diagnosis as part of an annual physical exam. I was told I had lymphoma for a long time before the diagnosis, wondering if it is possible to have normal white blood cell when the cancer is growing in your body. Dr. Benson, could you address that, even though it's a little bit... Um, yeah, um, it's certainly uh, entirely possible to have a normal white count with growing cancer. Lymphoma uh, most frequently involves the lymph nodes rather than the bone marrow, although it can involve the marrow in certain cases. But the cancer could be growing and you could have very enlarged lymph nodes very heavily involved with lymphoma, and yet if you have little or small amount in your bone marrow, uh, your white count may not be affected at all. Now, there are patients with other types of lymphoma where they do have heavy involvement in their bone marrow, and those patients certainly are at greater risk of developing neutropenia even before they start chemotherapy. Thank you. And I want to ask Dr. Um, Peterson a question um, that um, is just kind of frequently asked questions that you get uh, um, as a dentist who's providing care to patients. Um, are there things that um, come up frequently that you'd like to say a little bit more about in terms of um, their white cell counts and concerns? Yeah, I'll be glad to, to comment on that, Carolyn. An excellent, excellent question. And this comes up quite often as we work with uh, the dental and mouth management of a patient who's about to receive chemotherapy over the next few weeks. The question sometimes uh, comes from the patient and the family, how do we decide what to do now rather than waiting until the months and even a year after the chemotherapy ends? And the, the concept becomes the type of dental procedure, how invasive will the dental procedure be uh, as far as soft tissue and, and bone, for example, versus how intensive, as Dr. Bensinger mentioned, how intensive the upcoming chemotherapy will be and how long the neutrophils will be suppressed and, and uh, how low will the neutrophils go. So the answer varies, of course, from patient to patient, depending on the type of mouth problems they have before the chemotherapy and the type of upcoming chemotherapy. But something like just checking the teeth uh, for cavities or doing a simple dental x-ray should be in general perfectly safe because there's no uh, neutrophil count that's very, very low. But dental extractions where we actually take teeth out, for example, 
that, if we're going to do that, has to be coordinated very, very carefully with the, with the oncology team to make sure that uh, we have all the information we need to safely do the extraction and that there's enough time, typically at least 10 days to two weeks, after the extraction before the chemotherapy begins. So just to, to summarize, it's this uh, relationship between the invasiveness of the dental procedure versus the intensity of the upcoming chemotherapy. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and there's another question, actually, from one of our online participants. What is the recommendation for a patient who asks if they can eat yogurt and yogurt-based products? Danielle, could you address that? Oh, um, yogurt-based uh, products are fine, as, again, as long as they have been refrigerated properly and um, you check the expiration date. And are pasteurized? Do they need to be? Is that? Oh yes, and make sure they're pasteurized, definitely. <laughs> okay. So, um, and other than that, and that that then it would be fine, and unless they have any particular reason. Right. Any, any, I I have a question for Danielle. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, there's frequently. Um, interest in using probiotics, uh, if you will, the good bacteria. These are often found in some of the yogurt preparations. Do you consider those safe for uh, patients who might become neutropenic? Hmm. Yes, I think, I think they would be safe for patients that are um, neutropenic. Um, I mean, it does have the good bacteria. There's some, there's, I believe once you, you can look at the label and make sure they have been um, properly checked. If they have a USP symbol, uh, I believe that's the organization that checks the safety and efficacy of, all, of a lot of uh, different um, products, supplement products. But yes, as long as they, they check the label for that. Thank you. And do you think they also would want to just also connect with their physician, their oncologist, in terms of their chemotherapy, Dr. Benson? Oh, absolutely. Always like check, yeah. with the, check with your physician about which uh, supplements are okay before purchasing any. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. These are great questions, and this is fantastic. And there's another question like that, um, and this is going to involve everyone. Wondering what is the remedy for sore mouth? Is it true vitamin C helps? So, Dr. Peterson, do you want to address this first? And Yes, I, I'll give you the big picture. It's a, an area of uh, intensive research, actually, in the laboratory and in clinical settings. The bottom line is we've got some very good approaches to support the patient through the mucositis or the sore mouth experience. We don't typically rely on vitamin C per se, but again, if you'd like to discuss that with your, your cancer care team, that would be most appropriate. Uh, but we have uh, very effective approaches to control any mouth soreness, uh, reduce the risk of infection, uh, help minimize any taste disturbances and the like. There is one uh, biologic that's approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration for autologous stem cell transplant patients, so it's a relatively narrow label, and it's been shown to be quite effective in many patients in reducing the severity of the mouth sores. And as I mentioned during my presentation, there's quite a bit of work in this area that uh, is looking at new drugs and biologics. So hopefully we'll uh, have a very rich pipeline that'll 
that will allow us to be uh, more, even more comprehensive in the future. But for the time being, there's some state of the science, comfort approaches, infection reduction. Uh, vitamin C isn't typically emphasized in that, but again, I would uh, uh, be perfectly appropriate to discuss with your, your cancer care team. And that is a very important point. Dr. Benson, did you want to address vitamin C when you're getting no, chemotherapy? No, I, I, think, I think Dr. Peterson covered it very well. Okay, I have nothing good. to add. Okay, excellent. All right. Um, and we have uh, the questions are really a lot of, um, I have to say, online questions. Being two years post-chemo and still running mildly to severely neutropenic, why doesn't the marrow recover from chemo? Um, so, Dr. Benzinger, could you address that in a general way in terms of an issue? Sure. Well, that, that is a tough question, um, but as I mentioned, even the mildest forms of chemotherapy do some subtle damage to uh, the marrow cells. And with multiple cycles of chemotherapy, there may be a cumulative effect uh, that uh, damages the marrow to the point where it can't produce cells to um, a, what would be considered a normal level. And, but whether or not there is risk in terms of infection would really depend on what that level is. So if you run a white count, for example, or a neutrophil count of 1,200, that's not normal. But the risk for uh, in serious infections is relatively low. Now, one of the other things to keep in mind is there is a chance, depending on the prior treatment that's been received, sometime, that sometimes the marrow can develop into uh, a situation where it produces cells abnormally. This is a condition known as myelodysplasia. And what happens is the marrow has sustained damage from prior therapy and uh, certain cells start to grow that are producing cells abnormally. This can result not only in neutropenia, but anemia, low red cell count, or even thrombocytopenia. This is something that uh, should be monitored closely. So if you have uh, the development of myelodysplasia, and, and the, the best way to make that diagnosis is actually to do a bone marrow test. If you should develop that, you need to see a specialist and you need to be closely followed because that can evolve into more serious conditions. So that's excellent. Okay, thank you. I hope that's helpful. And um, please do talk with your healthcare team and so work out that plan. That's an excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so we have a question about um, using honey on foods and in coffee and tea. What type of honey would you suggest, Danielle? <clears throat> Excuse me, thank you. Of course, uh, it should be pasteurized. You want to make sure um, that it's purchased at the, at the store. Um, sometimes they have these local farms that make their own honey, but they haven't been through the proper process of pasteurization and everything. But it's okay to use as long as it's um, in pasteurized form. And check the, the date of the product. Excellent. Um, and then there is a question for Dr. Uh, Peterson, actually. Um, so this doesn't relate to sore mouth, but I noticed be since being on chemotherapy that I'm experiencing a lot of dryness in the nose and have nosebleeds. Along with this, I noticed twitching in my eyes and tearing. Can someone expound on this? 
Actually, I yeah. probably should relate that to Dr. Bensinger and then come back to you. Um, also, dry mouth as well is an issue. Do you want to address the dry mouth part of this, and then I'll turn the other part over to Dr. Bensinger. Sure, sure. The um, uh, the issue becomes is is it the chemotherapy and possibly the related neutropenia that's contributing to the dry mouth? And the the short answer on that is no, based on the literature. Uh, there is some suggestion that certain types of chemotherapy in a small number of patients may, may cause the mouth to become a little dry temporarily for a few days. But really, the, probably the, the, the bigger driver here clinically is not so much the chemotherapy and certainly not the neutropenia, but rather some of the very, uh, very effective drugs that we use to control any nausea and vomiting. And uh, there's many of those drugs that directly can cause the dry mouth. So I'll... Uh, I'll stop on the oral cavity, the mouth part, and then okay. turn this over to Dr. Bensinger. So Dr. Bensinger, so the part would be about experiencing a lot of dryness in the nose and have nosebleeds along with this. I've noticed switching in my eyes and tearing. Can someone expound on this? Um, can you well, I, I, I really just want to echo what Dr. Peterson has said. It's uh, Most of the time, these are side effects from the drugs that we use to try to minimize the nausea uh, and deal deal with that and prevent that. The, there are certain of these that can lead to the, the dry nose, dry mouth. Uh, if you're experiencing nosebleeds, it is important to make sure your platelet count is in a normal range because as the platelet count gets lower and lower, the risk of uh, bleeding goes up. And usually the first uh, site that you'll experience bleeding with a low platelet count is nose, so you'll get nosebleeds from that. But overall, I think what Dr. Peterson said about the medications is really important in that area. Excellent. And we have a question for um, Ms. Eckhart um, in terms of the role of the social worker, the oncology social worker, helping with practical matters um, with um, end-of-life planning, with will or trust and funeral <clears throat> arrangements. Do social workers help with that? Um, could you address that, um, Anna? Sure. Was the question directed to um, the person who's currently going through that or the family members? Was it specific? It's a general question, actually, um, just uh, for our online participants about oh, yeah. like, do social workers help with these various issues? We do. Um, we get a lot of calls uh, through our, our Hope Line. Um, a lot of our clients, whether they're a caregiver of someone with a cancer diagnosis who are considering these uh, end-of-life decisions um, uh, about you know the, the will or... Um, advanced directives, it is definitely something that we, um, uh, you know, counsel people with um, about the resources that are out there, the different websites, the different organizations that can be a support. Again, helping people to come up with the questions that they would like to ask, um, you, whether it be a medical professional, um, you know, the questions that, uh, and just helping them to decide what um, is best for them. You know, what, uh, so if it's a caregiver providing support, helping them process that experience of what it's like to have a conversation with those family members, um, how to involve family and friends, and if it's with the person who has been diagnosed, um, just helping them to walk through what are the most important um, pieces to this, uh, what, their, what their wishes are, um, and how they're also navigating the family members who might have different ideas of um, of what those decisions should be or, or, or what they want them to look like. So definitely, it's a, I would say it's part of um, my daily work. So uh, we certainly welcome those types of uh, those questions, those discussions, and we definitely do talk about that. 
We'll definitely do call for that. And I want to thank actually all of our speakers today. It's been really a remarkable. This is a multidisciplinary team of um, we have a medical oncologist, we have a dentist on the call, we have a a dietitian and we have an oncology social worker. So we have a multidisciplinary team really there to answer your questions and help you, and they're all available to you in your healthcare settings as well. Um, I think Anna did a wonderful job in reviewing with you all the services of cancer care, and please do take advantage of them. I also want to thank all of you who asked such wonderful questions that really allowed us to expand upon some issues that you might be concerned about. And um, do take advantage of our, our services. You can call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Also, we have a part three of this program, um, actually on uh, March 21st, Managing Cancer Pain, What You Need to Know. So I know many of you have signed up for that program, but if you hadn't already or interested or you're new to the program, please uh, do that. And we have other programs uh, as well coming up, so do check, um, check for that. And again, I don't want anyone to leave this program thinking that you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of our community of support, and you can simply call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you all, and have a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a great day.